0: oh the oscar goes to i love my life
1: hello there all you disloyal fool ass bitch made punks and welcome to spro and lee take on the academy still the only podcast that writes the wrongs and all that mess you know what spro i'm lee hey lee i'm spro (laughs) i don't know what we're doing here just being silly you know what else (laughs) i am stoked to examine this award which uh, is going to be the final link in our political chain and one that I initially urged you to skip. Oh, I remember the day.
2: (laughs) I may not respond to text much, but I read all the ones I receive and have some private emotion about it. Thinking about just stopping at giving Denzel for Malcolm X, I felt incomplete. Well, get ready to
1: become complete. I just, I needed some time (laughs) to find my way in. So for a quick recap, our political chain or poly academy which i still struggle to say has consisted so far of two episodes Today is our third and final and they've kind of all revolved around best actor awards misgiven for what we deem to be political reasons we started in 1975 and then followed up with 1993 and today we're going to conclude with an examination of the 74th academy awards in the year of our lord 2002 this was a memorable oscar telecast for several reasons but most notably perhaps that despite some persuasive criticism It actually happened, and only about six months after the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. (laughs) Interesting that we find ourselves on September 11th, 2021, recording this show. Um, The 20 year anniversary of that day. And on that day, it seemed as though in an hour, in a second, in a moment, uh, all our priorities were reshuffled and made quite a bit clearer. And even when we had time to process and we got a much needed holiday season, it kind of still felt like whoever was going to win the little golden men didn't really feel appropriate. But You know, almost like the sentient ring of power, Hollywood perceived its disposability in a post 9-11 world, and so they sent Tom Cruise, the president of Hollywood, to resell the industry and reinvigorate stocks and corporate holdings. Too cynical? Mm, Too fucking bad. An unshaven Cruise takes the spotlight, smiling his sneery smile and projecting his signature insincerity with a feigned passion that feels more like an undiagnosed blood clot. Even the audience appears strained once you see the begrudged looks of support painted on the faces attached to the clapping hands they seem entirely unconvinced because no one's buying the bullshit anymore magic is dead and reality killed it
3: ladies and gentlemen please welcome tom cruise
4: When the great director Billy Wilder was asked, what makes a movie unforgettable? His answer was simple, a little bit of magic. We're all here tonight or sitting at home watching because something came off a movie screen. A little bit of magic touched our lives. And you always remember where you were, the theater, the popcorn, the people you were with when it happened. It was 1968, my uh, family, I was living in Ottawa, Canada. The movie was Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey. I couldn't stop thinking about it. What is life? What is space? What is existence? I was six years old. (laughs) And I knew right then and there, I wanted to be an astronaut. (laughs) My family traveled a lot. The white hot thrill of Jaws, that was Louisville, Kentucky. Senior year, New Jersey, Apocalypse Now. Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, Raging Bull. I knew I wanted to be an actor. (laughs) In good times and poor times, movies were my lifesaver. And then last September came an event that would change us. An actor friend said to me, "What, what are we doing? What are we doing, is it important? Is it even important what I do? And what of a night like tonight? Should we celebrate the joy and magic that movies bring? Well, dare I say it, more than ever. A small scene. A gesture, even a glance between characters, can cross lines, break through barriers, melt prejudice, just plain make us laugh. (laughs) Brings us all together, that little bit of magic. That's just me. What do movies mean to you? It's Oscar night.
2: It is interesting though, he seems to be at the forefront of restarting the industry again with last year and COVID. Like Tom Cruise was the face of can we be back on set during COVID restrictions? And tiny, he promptly put himself Tom. there because of his angry, his angry rant. Tiny Tom Cruise. I'm sure our audience misses the laughter, the wit, the professional insight of Emily from last season when we took Oscars away from abusers. But I do believe this series of Poly Academy has not only righted wrongs, as is our To do, But has illustrated to our audience, one, how political the awards actually are, and two, how deep those rabbit holes can go. Who we give the award to tonight lost their award because of a string of events that started in 1975. Think about that. When our actor was seven, his destiny was already set. And honestly, maybe, quite possibly, this actor may never win an award, an Academy Award. I mean, he's won plenty. So for our last part in this Poly Academy chain, to quote Brad Pitt from Seven... Let's finish
1: it. All right. How about before we we do that, before we get into it, I want to start by uh, honoring some Oscar history. Spro writes these little historical reviews of the Academy Awards past, ties them in so beautifully to the present. I love love these. They feel like little think pieces that could pop up in variety or something. So, without further ado, here's an Oscar fun fact with Spro brought to you by Odd Dog Coffee. Ah.
2: For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick-me-up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor of 1993. We here at Spro and Lee Take on the Academy take our coffee seriously. We are passionate, eccentric, and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog.
1: Odd Dog Coffee is a specialty roaster based out of Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise a high-quality roast profile to create a solid bean, and when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, no, no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon stick. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every
2: day. Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from four original roasts, cardamom and clove, just the beans, cinnamon and cayenne cacao, or my personal favorite, rishi shroom and altheanine. Place your order now and get free shipping on orders over $40. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at
1: home with its dedication, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies you watch are too special to be normal, And the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but unknown.
2: There was a lot of talk about diversity at the Oscars for this year because this was the year that the first and only woman of African descent won for Best Actress, and that is Halle Berry. Cleveland's own, might I add, Halle Berry, for her role in Monsters Ball. If we were to dissect Berry's career, this may be her only really great role as well. In the race for Best Actor, we had, of course, the winner of the year, Denzel Washington, going up against Will Smith. In fact, there was also an Aussie with Russell Crowe and a Brit with Tom Wilkinson. In fact, the only actor representing quote-unquote white America was Sean Penn, which (laughs) we'll get to later. When it comes to race, I may be an outlier in my thinking. I believe there's five major problems in America we need to fix, and our relationship with race is in second place—a solid number two. But the subject of categorizing people based off the darkness of their skin is an American one. From the Consensus Bureau itself, the United States Census Bureau collects racial data in accordance with guidelines provided by the U.S. Office of Management and Budget, and these data are based on self-identification. Many other countries count multiple races based on origin, while America. America. America compiles multiple dozens of ethnicity groups into skin color, grouping them together. The fact that America feels like grouping people by skin color when it is an arbitrary measurement is nuts to me. We are raised in this thinking that there's a fundamental difference between people who have different skin pigments, which is only true in the sense that everybody is different regardless of skin pigmentation. Look, in order to proceed attacking the industry for its diversity from the bottom to the top, I, for one, feel I have to share how I actually perceive diversity myself. I do not believe in a white or black race. I'm not going to hold hands with Lee and sing. Cooper. But labeling people white or black seems so broad brush generic, it makes me feel dumb just thinking about it. This is sometimes met with criticism. To get a COVID-19 test, when it came to the gender question, the responses were male, female, or declined to identify. When it came to race, it was white, black, non-white Hispanic, or non-black Hispanic, Asian, other, or, quote, refused to answer, end quote. Refuse to answer sounds so much more negative, doesn't it, than decline to identify? Why are we so hostile toward the issue of race in this country? Why does America want skin tone to be so important? Well, maybe that's best left to another podcast. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. But look. To self-identify, my mother's people hailed from Cornwall, England, my father's from the no-longer-around country of Bohemia, and a bunch of my ancestors slept with other European folks here and there, and I will never know specifics of that. None of that, none of that I can tell you defines me at all. Being from Cleveland is more of an indicator of who I am, and yet everyone from Cleveland is different. Hell, there are Steeler fans in this city, which now I'm prejudiced against Steeler fans, but that's all in good fun. The first rule of dealing with your prejudice is realizing the fact that you don't know anyone at all based on how you first perceive them. If you look at someone and judge them, that's prejudice. You want to know who they are? You have to have a conversation with them. And dear listener, I dare you to have a meaningful conversation with a stranger. I dare you. For an introvert like me, that sounds terrifying. And fair warning, I'm also not using "quote unquote" black and white to describe people, which is hard. It's what we do in this country. I stutter a lot trying to change my thought processes, but going forward, if you feel it sounds funny to you, I absolutely I am sorry from the bottom of my heart. I'm trying to live my own truth, which while also trying to play within our society's expectations. I self-identify as Buddhist. Be the change you want to see in the world. Another famous Buddhist said. So, with all that said, it's very hard to figure out what the hell is up with race in America. and where we stand. According to the census, there's white, non-white Hispanic, black, non-black Hispanic. What does all this even mean? What I can tell you from research is that around 60% of Americans have lighter skin, whether they are from Russia or Europe or Africa or Asia or Canada or Brazil. Fucking no idea. We describe ourselves as a melting pot because of all these countries coming together. And yet we don't categorize the countries. Imagine I give you a recipe and tell you to put 14.5 ounces of red stuff, two tablespoons of green and a pinch of black. That's America, a great idea, poor execution. Apparently, it's too complicated to attract multiple dozens of ethnicity groups, but not too complicated to come up with a new sports record an athlete could break almost every single game. But 60% of Americans have lighter skin, 18% are Hispanic, which cultural lesson Hispanics refer to people who descend from Spanish speaking populations, including Spain, which is a quote unquote, white European country, Latinos, or if preferred Latinos or Latinxes, applies to those descended from Latin America, including Brazil. Put simply, Hispanic is tied to language while Latino is bound to geography. And around... 13% 13% of Americans are quote-unquote black or of African descent. The Oscar fun fact, which is a question of all this is, are our rates of inclusion at the Oscars for the four acting categories so good with the Latino population that we seem to be more worried about the inclusion rates of people of African descent? Because that's the conversation, right? What we hear about is white or black. I wonder in the long run, because I don't believe I see a whole lot of Spanish, Central American, South American people stepping up on that stage to accept awards either. And if they are a great percentage of the American population and have less inclusion than our brothers and sisters of African descent, is this not a problem we need to be yelling about louder? And I I just realized, I said louder, as a fan of the Academy Awards, I don't think I've heard the fight for Leighton X's on stage in the conversation at all. Sure, Penelope Cruz won Best Actress for Vicky Cristina Barcelona, the last Hispanic actress to win. Javier Bardem, another Spaniard, won for our season opener on No Country for Old Men. But they're from Spain. Remember, I'm saying the second largest quote unquote race in America is Hispanic at 18%. But really, how much of that percentage of our Americano Hermanos y Hermanas are from Spain? More than likely our 18% hails from Central and South America. So according to Variety, there have only been three Latino and one Latina winner in the four acting categories. Jose Ferrara for 1950s Serrano de Bergiac in Best Actor, Benicio Del Toro, 2000s Traffic in Supporting Actor, Rita Moreno, 1961's West Side Story in Supporting Actress, Anthony Quinn, who was born Manuel Antonio Rodolfo Quinn Huaca in Chihuahua, Mexico, 1952's Viva Zavada and 1956's Lust for Life in Supporting supporting category. What Variety did leave out was Lupita Nyong'o wins for 12 Years a Slave, an actress who identifies as Mexican Kenya because she was born in Mexico. Now, if we're talking directors, if you and I want to do an appreciation episode for international directors, I'll be all for it because my God, do they continually, in my eyes, outshine American directors. And this is nothing against all American directors. I'm not a broad brush painter, but you can't deny that when Alejandro González and Aritu put Birdman on the silver screen, that the craft there wasn't spectacular and some Something we rarely see. Include him with Quran and Del Toro, Chef's Kiss. One interesting observation in the Academy landscape is a larger tally of latent X's and crew categories like production design. Six winners and in 18 individual nominations are a much better showing than the others previously mentioned. To boil it all down, as far as the four acting categories go, only five actors and actresses of Latin descent have garnered 22 nominations and only won six Oscars in the Academy's 93 years. Whereas our thespians of African descent, our third largest quote unquote race group, 18 individuals have been nominated 84 times and they have won 20 acting categories. I'll reiterate, the third largest population in America, based off how we do our census, has 20 awards. The second largest population has only six. Like I said. our end-of-the-year wrap-up last season, the Oscars should do better, absolutely. And I think the tide is turning with its inclusion. But I believe we must hold a torch to the feet of SAG-AFTRA to try and get its diversity records for now, not only our friends of African descent, but those of Latin as well. Be the change you wish to see in the Academy, SAG-AFTRA. Be the change. Clayton Davis and Variety said it best, the Academy's announcement of diversity standards and representation was for all groups to benefit. We don't make progress by just taking care of our own. We do it by taking care of each other. There are so many more voices that need to be lifted in these spaces and let the conversation continue.
1: As long as I've been alive, I've kind of favored histrionics over history. But Spro, you make me want to crack a book. Brilliant as always.
2: Well, I just love my Academy Awards and I love my country and I hate how we simply, how simple we try to make everything. It's not simple. It's all very complicated, as is also the case with how Denzel Washington, out of all his fantastic roles, ended up winning for Training Day. Yeah. Well, let's
1: talk about it. The political choice of today's episode, some of you aren't going to like it,
2: is
0: Denzel Washington. <laughs>
2: This is the fifth Academy Award
0: nomination for Denzel Washington and his second Oscar. He won for Best Supporting Actor in 1989 for the Civil War film, Glory.
1: Denzel Washington winning Best Actor for Training Day, um, directed by Antoine Fuqua. All right, so as I said, enough foreplay. We're taking that Oscar away from Denzel. A Best Actor Oscar, the only Best Actor Oscar he's ever won. I'll say that again. The only Best Actor Oscar he's ever won. And if that makes you mad, then you're just as nerdy as we are and definitely listen to the right podcast. If it doesn't make you mad, maybe this will. Denzel was not nominated for his performances in the following films. Philadelphia, Crimson Tide, Courage Under Fire, Remember the Titans, Man on Fire, and American Gangster.
0: <laughs> Two birds with one night, huh?
4: <laughs>
0: oh, God is good. God is great. God is great. From the bottom of my heart, I thank you all. Forty years I've been chasing Sydney. They finally give it to me. What do they do? They give it to him the same night. I'll always be chasing you, Sydney. I'll always be following in your footsteps. There's nothing I would rather do, sir. So nothing I would rather do. God bless you. God bless you. God. Oh, I want to I thank uh, uh, the Academy. You know, when I was in college, uh, first starting out as an actor, they asked each one of us what we wanted to do. I said, I want to be the best actor in the world. All the, all the students in the classroom looked at me like I was an, a nut. Life has taught me to just try and be the best that I can be. And I, I thank the Academy for saying to me that on this given night, I was the best that I could be. I want to thank uh, Warner Brothers and uh, Alan Horn and Lorenzo de Bonaventura uh, for supporting this film and uh, Antoine Fuqua a brilliant young filmmaker, African-American filmmaker. I don't know where you are, Antoine, love you. Ethan Hawke, my partner in crime. <laughs> uh, so many people, I, don't, I can't even remember everybody. Lawyers, doctors, agents, my, <laughs> my beautiful agent. Ed Lomato, we've been together for so many years. Hometown boy from Mount Vernon. My beautiful wife, I love you so much. You put up with me in spite of myself. and. Uh, my beautiful children at home. I told you if I lost tonight, I would come home and we'd celebrate, and if I won tonight, I would come home and we'd celebrate. Well, I'm coming home, we're celebrating. God bless you all.
1: If you've been keeping score, we've already covered two Ampass fuck-ups that saw Denzel get passed over. The first, how he lost possibly his most deserved Best Actor for Malcolm X to Al Pacino's silly-ass Frank Slade in Scent of a Woman. And second, after turning in his most heart-wrenching lead performance in Hurricane, he again lost Best Actor, this time to Kevin Spacey. Because he played a horny man-child whose life was what, in a slump? Garbage. Two times. Denzel tried portraying historical figures and left the show with an attaboy, thanks for playing. But what about when he lost in 2013? Quick refresher. That year, Denzel played Whip Whitaker in what is probably going to be Zemeckis' final film worth talking about, Flight. Whitaker is a commercial pilot who, after another typical night of sex, drugs, and alcohol takes the yoke of a doomed aircraft filled with 102 people. When the plane begins to nosedive, Whitaker manages a miracle landing, saves 96 of the passengers in the process. But following the crash, Whitaker's addictions mount, as does the pressure from the public, the airline, and the NTSB. Whitaker literally implodes, and despite playing a thoroughly pathetic man, Denzel makes him sympathetic. I don't know about y'all, but that's his greatest gift to me, is playing fuck-ups who need direction, who crave help, and who want to be better. Courage Under Fire was probably one of the first times I cried in a theater, but the drunk he plays in that movie is a fucking saint compared to Whip Whitaker. If you haven't seen Flight, and you love Denzel, you, you gotta. Alright, let's cut to the chair. We, 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 just tell me what it is
0: I need to know, Charlie. The NTSB Go team also collects blood, uh, hair and scan samples from the entire flight crew uh, for the purposes of a toxicology report.
5: Okay. When they want to do that? They've already done that in the
0: hospital. It's the first thing they do. You don't remember having your blood drawn the night of the crash? No. No. They get the results of this, this test? Yeah, they do. Now, An initial report shows that you had alcohol in your system uh, at a level of 0.24.
1: In the good old U.S. of A., one of the most lenient drunk driving countries in the world, you go to jail for driving with anything above 0.08. And by driving, I mean a car.
0: Mm.
1: Thank you. Um.
5: So that uh, doesn't mean anything. A couple of beers the night before the flight that made the tail of the plane explode. A couple of beers? Yeah, a couple of beers. You know, I need a lawyer, Charlie. You as your lawyer? I need a bigger lawyer. I need a lawyer that understands that someone put me in a broken plane. Without me up there, there would have been 102 funerals, not six. We're not talking about funerals right now, What are we talking about? We're talking about? about prison time.
1: That year, 2013, he lost to Daniel Day-Lewis for playing a historical figure, Abraham Lincoln, in Spielberg's Lincoln. I can't speak much to that choice because I couldn't get through the first 10 minutes of Lincoln. Uh, Who knows? Maybe it got better, but I doubt it. How about four years later when Denzel directed and starred in an adaptation of August Wilson's Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Fences, a social and family drama about a Black family living in Pittsburgh in the 1950s? Apart from being well-directed, Denzel again gives another real and flawed human being in Troy insensitive badass of a patriarch who's been justifiably hardened and embittered. Denzel's masculine bravado is on Front Street here, and we all know he's damn good at that, but as before, Denzel shines brightest when he's able to layer his performance with gradual, revelatory moments of character imperfections.
4: Can I ask you
5: a question? What the hell you got to ask me, Mr. Stawicki, the one you got the questions for? How come you ain't never like me? Like you? Who the hell said I got to like you? What law is there say I got to like you? Wanna stand up in front of my face and ask a damn fool-ass question like that? Talking about liking somebody. Come here, boy, when I talk to you. Straighten up, goddammit. I asked you a question. What law is there say I got to like you? None. All right, then. Don't you eat every day? Answer me when I talk to you. Don't you eat every day? Yeah. Nigga, as long as you in my house, you put a sir on the end of it when you talk to me. Yes, sir. You eat every day. Yes, sir. Got a roof over your head. Yes, sir. Got clothes on your back. Yes, sir. Why you think that is? Because of you. <laughs> Hell, I know it's because of me, but why do you think that is? Because you like me? Like you. I go out of here every morning. I bust my butt putting up with them crackers every day because I like you. You're about the biggest fool I ever saw. It's my job. It's my responsibility. A man is supposed to take care of his family. You live in my house, fill your belly with my food, put you behind on my bed because you're my son. Because I like you, because it's, it's my duty to take care of you. I owe a responsibility to you. Now, let's get this straight right here now before I go along any further. I ain't got to like you. Mr. Rand don't give me my money, come pay day cause he like me, he give it to me cause he owe me. Now I don't give you everything I got to give you, I give you your life. Me and your mama worked that out, between us and liking your black ass wasn't part of the bargain. Now don't you go through life worrying about whether somebody like you or not. You best be making sure they're doing right by you. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, sir. Then get the hell out of my face and get on down to that A&P.
1: Troy turns out to be just like a lot of other people, a selfish liar and a complete hypocrite. Through his performance as Troy, Denzel shows the depths to which a good man trying his best can plummet. It's definitely one of his best. Top three. Again, if you didn't see that, you should. But of course, he didn't win that year either. Gary Oldman finally got a statue for his transformative performances, Winston Churchill in Joe Wright's Mediocre, The Darkest Hour. This is a bit off topic, but at least it's honest. Oldman shouldn't have waited till he was 60 to receive his first Oscar either. And that's certainly not his best performance. But moving on. Quick recap. I got you. Denzel plays historical figures. The Academy pours cement over him. Denzel plays fictional characters. The Academy fawns over the Oscar grab historical performance, which finally brings us to training day. I like training days, bro. I think you like it too. I don't think there's nothing to not like about it. Okay. And Denzel is undeniable in it, but isn't he always? Even when he's the best thing about a bad film, of course. Don't mishear me. I don't think Training Day is a bad film. It's good. Even before I saw it, I knew it was good because odd dog owner Mike Hancock told me so. Mike's not a huge movie dude, but he humored me a lot. And whenever he saw something without me that he thought was good, he'd tell me about it. And in the 20 years that I've known him, Training Day was maybe three times Mikey recommended a movie to me instead of the other way around. And Mike's sort of right. Training Day is a good film but I think to call it a fun film might be more precise. If a tad inappropriate But it is fun And why the hell is that? Because it's flashy And it's fast Because it feels like An amusement park ride Because we are the cute And incorruptible white dude Riding shotgun in a black Monte Carlo Lowrider Flying like bats Through the LA underworld We twist and turn And gasp and chuckle We get little peeks At this world And they're just enough To remind us Why we're so lucky And why we took this ride In the first place And the finale It emboldens us It strengthens our resolve That the world is festering And we are the ones To cut out the cancer And when at last We disembark We dare to feel strong and proud of ourselves as if we gained some insight about the world or ourselves but we didn't god damn
2: dude are you a good writer <laughs> think so <laughs> yeah like i totally want to watch training day again now <laughs> just because you like you wrote that out thank you i appreciate it you disloyal
5: fool ass bitch made punk
2: jay i need my
3: money
5: Oh, you motherfuckers, (laughs) okay. All right, I'm putting cases on all you bitches. Huh? You think you can do this shit? Yay! You think you can do this to me? You motherfuckers will be playing basketball in Pelican Bay when I get finished with you.
3: Shoe program,
5: nigga. 23-hour lockdown. I'm the man up in this piece. You'll never see the light of Who the fuck you think you fucking with. I'm the police. I run shit here. You just live here. Yeah, that's right. You better walk away. Go and walk away because I'm going to burn this motherfucker down.
3: King Kong ain't got shit on me.
1: Crash. Community resources against street hoodlums. This is real. The script of Training Day draws from their violent legacy. During an era of absolutely unrivaled police dominance in Southern California, this was the era of Daryl Gates, Operation Thunder, of state-funded terrorism, Batarams, and N.W.A. Unchecked police operating without impunity, state-sanctioned racial profiling culminated with the vicious beating of Rodney King and the explosive backlash of the L.A. riots. Unsurprisingly, Crash survived those riots. But as evil often does, crash ultimately destroyed itself thanks to the testimony of Officer Rafael Perez. After being caught stealing six pounds of Peruvian marching powder from LAPD's property division, Perez ratted out the whole organization in exchange for a severely reduced sentence. And what were the allegations? Planning evidence. Falsifying reports, violence, theft, murder, cover-up. Basically, the crew of cops that Denzel leads in the film. In March of 2000, Crash units were disbanded, and Perez ended up doing a whopping 41 months. Make no mistake, I'm skipping a stone over all of this history. I'm almost done, bro. I promise. Do you want to? You want to jump in at it all?
2: <laughs> no, fuck you, man. I didn't know any of this, and I'm enraptured. One of my favorite TV shows is The Shield, and I wonder how much of Crash. Or C-R-A-S-H, which I, I don't want to call Crash because of the horrible Academy film, which I'm surprised we haven't talked about yet. Like, that's probably third season. Keep going. Interestingly, though, The Shield is based
1: also on on the Crash units. Now I feel bad liking it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So initially I wanted Denzel to keep this award, which is why I told you, no, I don't want to do the 2002 episode. He's fucking Denzel. And more than that, Alonzo is iconic. A loquacious bad guy whose antics actually are cool and pleasing to audiences. Sort of like Hans Gruber or the Sheriff of Nottingham and Prince of Thieves. Clearly I have a thing for Alan Rickman. Seriously though, who doesn't get fired up when Alonzo sheds his skin for the first time in the alley clacking the two barrels of his 45s together and making the two rapists shit their pants what was that you said to me you told, told me, me to, to suck, suck your dick. dick bitch isn't that what you said to me look at me
5: you want me to suck your dick that's what you said right That what you said hmm? didn't you say suck my dick bitch don't lie to me that's what you said you're telling me i'm a liar you didn't say suck my dick bitch that's not what you said to me so i'm lying Am I
0: lying?
1: No. And neither of the two rapists, neither of these two criminals are afraid of Euthan Hawk. So they got that right. Alonzo may be intimidating and smart and cool, the character's cut from construction paper. There's no arc to speak of unless Down is an arc. Again, don't mistake me now. I love this performance. It's absolutely undeniable. And leave it to Denzel to gather up all the residual LA hatred for Crash, for Gates, for the police officers who beat King and got away with it and channel it all into the nastiest bastard of a cop ever shown on film. And that includes the damaged and drug-addled Harvey Keitel and Bad Lieutenant. Keitel endos, ends up having a heart underneath it all. Alonzo has nothing, no heart, no soul. When you peel it back, there's just more evil. Denzel is a true Hollywood treasure, a bona fide Mount Rushmore actor of the last 30 years. But for some reason, this was the year they chose to finally honor the man. I find the Academy's Choice borderline Offensive, and not in any political or social sense. This is just the cinema-goer in me talking. After the breadth of characterizations, the wealth of worthier performances that Washington has given us, the flawed humans he's played with aplomb, the hope he's given me personally through his many redemptive stories that the Academy chose to finally shine a light on him for playing Alonzo. It's just utter horseshit. Mm -hmm. And let me leave you with one final dick punch of a coda to this tale. There's a really good chance that Denzel wasn't even supposed to win this year. As I'm sure you're aware, Spro, this is the year that your boy, Russell Crowe... Not uh, my boy. Not 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 my boy. (laughs) (laughs) That somebody's boy, Russell Crowe, plays John Nash in A Beautiful Mind, which we'll talk about later, um, for which Crowe had already won a slew of awards. He was the odds-on favorite, but there are some who allege... That following his little bitch fit at the uh, BAFTA after party, the Academy shifted their support away from Crow to simultaneously condemn his behavior and support their British counterparts. So, if the big dumb Aussie hadn't roughed up the BAFTA producer for cutting short his blowhardy acceptance speech, he was reading a poem at the time, he might have won two years in a goddamn row, and Denzel might still be waiting. What a fucking joke
2: do you have the poem is it like a long poem
1: sanctity by patrick Kavanaugh. to be a poet and not know the trade to be a lover and repel all women twin ironies by which great saints are made the agonizing pincer jaws of heaven
2: fuck was he reading that for (laughs) yeah it's pretty bad yeah (laughs) i don't even okay it was funny when you started Talking that, I was like, I I was trying to come up with an analogy of how we were removing this award from Denzel because, yeah, it seems like no matter what, like I thought people would get angry that we're taking Emma Stone's award away, like going after Pixar's up. Some of these other awards that we've done, I feel like this might be if somebody just reads the title and judges us based off of that, they'd be like, "What the fuck Mm -hmm, are these two mm -hmm. guys thinking that they're gonna do?" You know, and it's like where I was at. Like, we're
1: all we had was the title and I hadn't had a chance to wrap my head around it. I'm like, nah, this isn't going to work.
2: Yeah. And so, like, I'm almost angry at us for (laughs) taking this award, especially because it's his only award. There's nothing good about this, (laughs) except the fact that we say we're here to right a wrong. And the wrong isn't Denzel getting an award, because if we look at all of our notes, we have now given Denzel two awards which is even a fraction of what he deserves. But we got to take this one away. This one is just not, this one is not his. It's not his. But here's a question for you. Instead of thinking Denzel might still be waiting, right, if he did not get this year's award, you've already talked about two more worthier film roles in Denzel's future with Flight and Fences. Did the Academy shoot their load too early in awarding for Training Day? And if so, isn't that even more offensive to think that they had to award Training Day because they doubted Denzel's ability to turn in another great performance like he's want to do?
1: I don't want to focus on your um, your little cliche shoot their load there but it makes it sound like they're sitting there waiting to finish <laughs> 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 It's like they're waiting to be like, okay, we got to give him one. When are we going to give him one? Yeah, I think they jumped on it. I think this was absolutely the year where you had Sidney Poitier being honored. You had Halle Berry win. You had Denzel Washington win. This is the same year that you had a Robert Redford Honorary Award and a Sidney Poitier Honorary Award. Everyone interviewed for the Robert Redford Honorary Award montage clip. They were all white. And after the award was given to him, it cut back to Whoopi Goldberg. And she's like, what the fuck? She's like. I would have liked to be interviewed about Bobby. I could talk about Bobby. So I don't know, man. It, it, it seemed like this was the year where they couldn't hide. They just couldn't hide the marketing. And they were they were trying to too fast um, and disingenuously prove that they were being progressive with their awarding. And it's it's a shame because you fit all of these puzzle pieces together and you realize that you're staring at an image of a giant middle finger.
2: Yeah all right well let's write the wrong let's fucking do it the awards we have just for shits and giggles uh the golden raspberries this year was the year that here's a name that you probably haven't thought about for a while but <laughs> tom green won the golden raspberry for his role in freddie got fingered i like but, that. So- i like that movie <laughs> Dude, I don't think I've ever seen it all the way through. It's
1: fucking ridiculous.
2: But also up for the Golden Raspberry was uh, my boy Ben Affleck in Pearl Harbor. That's I would say Ben Affleck is my boy over Russell Crowe. I really like Kevin Costner because he really likes Cleveland. So I'll, I'll put him in my boy too. Uh, America's current darling, Keanu Reeves, mm-hmm. was up for a golden raspberry this year for his role in Hardball and Sweet November. And John Travolta in Domestic Disturbance and Swordfish so then moving on golden globes comedy or musical the more that we research for the show the more that i'm kind of like i'm glad that the golden well not anymore but the golden globes did recognize that comedy and musical as a separate category should be honored because the academy kind of turns its back on comedies not necessarily musical but comedies and genre films so i like it but then when you like look into all five that they nominated three of them feel kind of like scraping the barrel right but this year the nominations were billy bob thornton for bandits john cameron mitchell for hedwig and the angry inch ewan mcgregor for moulin rouge hugh jackman for kate and leopold and i think we could talk about him right now but gene hackman for the royal Tenenbaums, who won this year okay can i ask you something hank
3: (coughs) okay
5: Are you trying to steal my woman?
3: I beg your pardon? You heard me, Coltrane. Coltrane? What? Did you just call me Coltrane? No. You didn't? No. Okay.
5: But if I did, you wouldn't be able to do anything about it, would you?
3: You don't think so? No, I don't. Listen, Royal, if you think you can You wanna talk some jive? I'll talk some jive. I'll talk some jive like you never heard. Oh, yeah? Right on! Sit down! What? What did you say? I said sit down, goddamn! Oh, I it. heard you! I want you out of my house! This is not your house! You're the ass out! Don't talk some addicts No, some no that's just not your What's going on here? Listen.
1: Did he deserve an Oscar nod for uh, playing Royal Tenenbaum in and Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums? I can't decide. I, don't know. I can't decide. Yeah. Let me work it out a little bit. Um, I think his nomination in the co- comedy musical acting category was about the end of the accolades he received, other than maybe some critical praise. And I want to mention this, and not because I enjoy perpetuating gossip, but because I think it matters. Gene Hackman's a dick. Um, We've all worked with difficult people before, and I think more often than not, I've probably been the difficult one. Um, And while I would certainly never dismiss my own poor behavior, I'm fairly confident I'd never tell a grown man to pull their pants up and act like a man, let alone my boss which is what Hackman did to director Wes Anderson. I'll spare you the rest of the stories, but suffice to say, Hackman was a handful on this set and almost entirely directed his vitriol at the young filmmaker.
2: Yeah. like I don't know about you, but Gene Hackman just seems like a man from my father's era. My father, a man I love and respect. Um, I gave his eulogy with the same devil may care affection I'm about to express. My father was an asshole, (laughs) a great (laughs) man, but I mean, he was an asshole. In fact, you take Gene, Hackman in any role, a little Robert Redford, a little Michael Corleone, and le- a little, yes, dare I say, the humorous side of Trump, you get my father. And I think Gene's just from that era when you expressed your anger honestly, regardless of what kind of person it made you look like. Okay. I mean, I, I can
1: live with that, but what the fuck was he so mad about? Is it just old man grumpiness? Was it his considerably reduced pay? Uh, maybe he was preoccupied with a nagging notion that he and Royal were a bit too similar because allegedly he didn't want to take the part at first. Because He felt like it would make light of his own failings as a father, but it was eventually his own family who convinced him to go for it. Maybe he was mad that his understanding with Anderson was that his production schedule would be easy breezy, and it was not. But a lot of that was Hackman's choice. From what I've read, Hackman showed up on set every day to read lines, even off camera. Whatever the case was, whatever the bee in his bonnet was, I think Hackman still put out a performance that was more than memorable in a film that solidified Anderson's name in American cinema.
2: Yeah, I mean episode one, Jeremy and I said this was our favorite Anderson film, and it is in part because of Hackman. And I love Hackman. My father once said Gene Hackman was his favorite actor, and I think that because I love my father, you know, and I, I don't know if you do it with your father's opinions, but that kind of shit starts melding into your own brain. And I go, every time I've seen Gene Hackman, I remember my father's voice, and I think that's always going to be endearing for me. But this isn't a Hackman film, right? Like the ensemble was casted brilliantly and I think Hackman kind of fades into that. And I would
1: disagree. I don't think he fades into it. Um, I do agree that it's a case of an ensemble film. In fact, you could you could probably make a pretty strong case that ever since The Royal Tenenbaums, all of Anderson's films have been strong ensemble pieces. I think maybe Rushmore and then maybe, maybe Darjeeling, you could consider less so, but every one of his movies following Tenenbaum has a character whose persona reflects shades of Hackman's Royal. And if we're just talking about Royal bombs, Owen Wilson has some comedic bits, and occasionally Ben Stiller is able to be funny, but all of the best comedic lines are Royals. And despite being an insolent prick on set and a manipulative asshole of a character on the page, Hackman's performance as Royal brings a much-needed levity to an otherwise depressing and dark story about a family of suicidal misfit geniuses. He makes you laugh more than anybody else throughout that movie. I might have nominated him.
2: I'm with you, and we could talk about we could bring them up again when we get to the final five. So, back burner, Gene Hackman. Okay. And we'll move on to MTV. Best male performance. I'm trying to do that guy's voice. Best male performance. Best male performance. They had nominated Elijah Wood, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Josh Hartnett for Pearl Harbor. So I feel so bad for my boy Ben Affleck. Josh Hartnett's getting praise and he's getting raspberries. Vin (laughs) Diesel, The Fast and the Furious. Russell Crowe, A Beautiful Mind, of which I don't think a whole lot of MTV audiences saw. And then the winner of that was Will Smith. Ali, is there anyone other than who we're gonna talk do You want to talk Elijah, Josh,
1: Vin? Um, oh, I'm always down to talk Vin, but if it's not Riddick, I don't want it. Um, okay, I, could I like talk.
2: That pick. <laughs> yeah, we could talk Elijah. Uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is very special to me. Anybody that knows me and the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, I felt had some actors to consider. And I know that you love Ian in this film. And I know we discuss people like Brando and The Godfather and Viola Davis and Ma Rainey's of people who are not given the most screen time still up for the starring award. But if anything, I feel this is this is a Frodo slash Elijah Wood film. And Ian doesn't have his name in the title to help him get to the top of the ticket. I agree. Let me just say, too, I love
1: Ian. I love both Ian's in this movie Ian McKellen as Gandalf, but also Ian Ian Holm as, as Bilbo Baggins. But I think, first and foremost, it should be said that the performances aren't one of the stronger suits of the LOTR trilogy. Everybody does their job, certainly. And the mantra on set must have been, like, let's fucking go for it, mate. You know, and it works for the most part. Like, everybody's kind of swinging for the fences. But I don't think anybody stands out the way the two Ian's do, especially McKellen as Gandalf. He's warm. Charming, bumbling, and grumpy, and I still feel as though he spoke directly to Americans. At a time when we needed a wise old man Maybe I'm speaking for myself But I think of two parts in particular And I'll tell them out of order But the sequence on the bridge of Khazad-dum Where Gandalf falls Defending the fellowship from the Balrog Man, I just let loose in the theater All five times that I saw that in the dark And it still makes me cry without fail Or before Gandalf's fall When he and Frodo are sitting together in the mines And Frodo starts despairing You know, lamenting that he wished the ring had stayed hidden Or gone to someone else And Gandalf reminds him that while he may not be able to make that choice, he does have the power to choose what he does with the time that is given to him. And those moments are still so special to me. They're so indelibly linked to my memory immediately following 9-11, just feeling nothing but
2: doubt and fear. It really helped
1: me escape at a time when I needed it. I
2: think that's like a great pitch for I understood why they awarded The Return of the King for best picture because it was almost like a cumulative yeah award for the trilogy but Return of the King is not my favorite it used to be mine but <clears throat> I, I have come around I mean f- Fellowship is... Fellowship gives you that feeling that you're talking, you know, like, and that's what uh, I always, my one knock on the whole trilogy, and even like the Hobbit series was, he failed to give me the Battle of the Shire from the books. Mm. And if he went back and just gave me that which is not probably a whole movie, but you could, now I would really like it to be, because the feeling of the Shire was so quick at the end of the Return of the King that I was like, no, 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 I want to get back to that feeling that I <laughs> had for Fellowship, right? Which he, you know, to borrow a phrase that you said earlier, he skipped a stone over that feeling. Oh, I- You're late.
5: A wizard is never
3: late,
2: Frodo
5: Baggins. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's wonderful to see you,
2: Gandalf. (laughs) All right. Uh, The Saturn Awards is always a fun look. This is the genre awards that really look at sci fi and horror. Billy Bob Thornton was nominated for The Man Who Wasn't There. Kevin Spacey, good old Uncle Bad Touch Spacey um, (laughs) was nominated for K-Pax. Guy Pearce for Memento. Anthony Hopkins for Hannibal. Johnny Depp was nominated for From Hell and Tom Cruise, Vanilla Sky. There's two in here that I want to talk about. We got Guy Pearce from Memento, which I don't think should be overlooked, and Tom Cruise from Vanilla Sky. We can gloss over Vanilla. Let's
1: start with Vanilla Sky.
2: Okay. So Vanilla Sky, this movie's third act is such a crime against itself in my eyes. I can see why people wanted to praise Tom Cruise for it. We all still loved him at the time. Remember, this was four years before he jumped on a couch and everyone who was raised in a codependent book club pointed to his religious cult and said, we don't like these new beliefs. <laughs> I, for one, don't care if he's a Scientologist. I, for I two. miss... I miss non-action Tom Cruise. I miss, and I know you roll your eyes when I bring up A Few Good Men, mm-hmm. but I miss A Few Good Men. I miss Jerry Maguire. I miss Born on the Fourth of July. I miss I miss non-action Tom Cruise. But when it comes to Vanilla Sky, I only rewatch the first and second acts for Miss Cameron Diaz and Miss Penelope Cruz. Tom was just holding the trains for these two actresses in the film. Okay.
1: Yeah, I appreciate Cameron Crowe, who wrote, I believe, wrote the adaptation from the original film called Translates to Open Your Eyes. And he directed it. And while my respect for Cruise is kind of waning, not that it was ever terribly strong to begin with, I still kind of like him. Again, I don't give a shit about his religious beliefs. I think he's definitely a champion of cinema. The guy is out of his mind with the stunts that he undertakes, flying helicopters and hanging off of planes that are flying. This movie, though, was just one hell of a swing for Crow and Cruise, especially when you consider their previous collaboration was Jerry Maguire. But I don't think it's unpopular to say they should have just stuck with that apex schmaltz that they achieved with You Had Me at Hello.
2: Yeah, so Vanilla Sky aside, let's talk about probably what I think is Christopher Nolan's best film, Mm -hmm. and that is Memento.
5: I have to believe in a world outside my own mind. I have to
2: believe that my actions still have meaning, even if I can't
5: remember them. I have to believe that when my eyes are closed, the world's still there. Do I believe the world's still there? Is it still out there? Yeah. We all need mirrors to remind ourselves who we are. I'm no different.
2: Just for like a personal note, I really feel like Hollywood needs to take the purse away from Nolan and say, make your next film for $2 million and show us what you can really do. Because I think he's getting too distracted by the budgets that he could bring in Mm -hmm. and trying to work with those because Nolan is a great mind. I still You're, like Tenet. Oh, my
1: gosh. I did. I want to see it again. Ew. I can't believe I haven't seen it again. Did you hear he's got a new project now that's been announced? He's shopping it. I think- so. Probably get picked up by Sony if I had to guess. What is it? Um, it's uh, a J. Robert Oppenheimer um, biopic. Mm. The guy that uh, kind of single-handedly devised the atom bomb. Well, we know my opinion on Dunkirk. <laughs> Uh, And I think it's better than you think. Um, I picked up this weird thing from my parents. I don't know if it's weird or not, because I don't don't know if anybody else does this besides my parents, uh, my brother and me. I, I measure the passage of time by relating it to when movies came out. And more than any of these other movies from this year, which are all the same age, it's weird to me to think that Chris Nolan's Memento is 20 years old. I saw it in the theater on the recommendation of a buddy, a friend of a friend, a kid named Sam, who, I mean, I haven't seen in probably 20 years. But whenever he came around, he and I talked movies, and it was like somewhere after the Christmas of 2000, he told me about what he was just referring to as the Backwards movie that was coming out soon. I think this is the singular guy, Pierce. Performance. I mean, he has to carry such a weight with this movie. And the other thing is, too, that like after seeing him in LA Confidential and then this, I really thought we were going to see a lot of him. And boy, he just really made a lot of shitty movies since then.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it happens to a lot of people <laughs> in the industry. I read a lot of scripts this year, and I read all of Christopher Nolan's. And re- it's not my favorite film, but Interstellar was my favorite script. But Memento was my second favorite. To give Nolan props, the way that he wrote the script, he put in bold what was in black and white, and he put in regular script what was going backwards. But like you said, this was this was Guy Pierce's. There's not a scene without him in it. This is all from his viewpoint. This is all from his memories. He is undoubtedly carrying this film. And not only that, he has to make you believe that his memory is only what is like somewhere between 15 seconds and two minutes, and it's jumping all over the place. And so pretty much for I don't know the runtime of the film, but over 90 minutes, Guy Pearce is sitting there making you believe he doesn't know what just happened. (laughs) And it's amazing. I think Guy Pearce is one of those actors that does a good job when he shows up, but he never really seems invited to the party. And like you, I don't know why. I remember saying, in our first show about King's Speech that I really enjoyed him and maybe would have looked his way for a supporting actor nod. And you said, yeah, but he was always playing off Firth, who you can't deny. One thing that I might ding him for is along the lines of what you said about Denzel in Training Day, because his character doesn't really have thoughts long enough for emotion. And so his character and his acting kind of sails right through. Although... We brought it up with Lawrence last season about being there. Yeah, being a protagonist that doesn't change. I wonder if this is a hidden case of a a protagonist that doesn't change because he kind of just is after, I mean, even when he gets his quote unquote revenge, spoiler alert, even when he gets his quote unquote revenge of his wife's killer, he goes right back to trying to find his wife's killer. So this might be a protagonist that doesn't change. I I mean, I, I think
1: that's a good argument. It does seem like a little bit of a cheat, though, since my man can't really change because the psychosis keeps him from learning and evolving, but apart from his his tattoos and notes. But, but as to your first point, yes, minimally, I think he deserves a nomination, whereas at least one of the Oscar nominees for this year did not.
2: So put him in the back burner, in the back barrel with Mr. Gene Hackman. And so that was the Saturn Awards. We move on to the Golden Globes for Drama which the only person we haven't talked about in this is Kevin Spacey from The Shipping News. Oh, God, Kevin. Kevin Spacey just comes up way too much. When it comes to Kevin Spacey and The Shipping News, I'm still waffling on taking seven off my helm of favorite films of all time. And I think I kind of justify it to myself because the fact that, once again, spoiler alert, Kevin Spacey gets shot multiple, multiple times in it. And I never really understood Morgan Freeman's line of. David, if you kill him, he will win. Because in my view, if you kill him, we all win. (laughs) Not in real life. I don't want to point out that like I'm a murderous son of a bitch. But in the movie, John Doe deserves to die, in my eyes. Regardless, as far as this episode goes, and as far as hindsight goes, I don't want to be in any more conversations where we reward someone after learning of the terrible deeds that he did.
1: Yeah, dude, that and this movie was boring as hell. The late great Pete Postlewaithe is brilliant as always, as is Scott Glenn, and even kind of Julianne Moore, but... I hated damn near everybody and everything else about this movie, save the locations. It's fucking white people nonsense, if I can be so bold.
2: <laughs> and if anybody is you know, tracking what we're talking about in their car on their little center council notepad, the other four nominees for Golden Globes drama was Russell Crowe, A Beautiful Mind Who Won. And then Will Smith for Ali, Billy Bob Thornton, the man who wasn't there, and Denzel Washington for training day. BAFTAs, Jeremy's BAFTAs. What are you going to call Jeremy's BAFTAs? I actually moved the BAFTAs to like the final thing to talk about because of Mr. Jeremy Cordy. This has your boy in it, though, Ian McKellen for The Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings. The Fellowship of the Ring is Gandalf. Mm-hmm. Jim Broadbent for Iris. Kevin Spacey, Tom Wilkinson in the bedroom, Russell Crowe wins the BAFTAs, which we talked about for A Beautiful Mind, Jim Broadbent for Iris, good God. All right, a little insight. (laughs) I don't know if it's 9-11, I don't know, like there's so much like nostalgia and I probably talked about my dad more on this episode than I have like in 2021. So I had a huge crying jag. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at the end of watching iris and i don't know what it is so iris is a film where judy dench is a writer fuck me right and then she is losing she's sinking into dementia and it's cross-cut with kate winslet playing the same role as a younger judy dench whose name is iris and then jim broadbent and hugh bonneville plays the guy that falls in love with her the stuttering guy the thing there being the fact that he can't always find his words falling love with a woman who always can until she starts singing into dementia. And then she can't find even her thoughts. And he is in love with this woman's mind. And so when she starts losing hers, he starts losing himself. This film is so sad. And also for myself, I was like, oh my gosh, like, I don't know. I don't want to get into all that. But this film wrecked me in a way that not too many films have. You don't want to get
1: into all what?
2: It's all, I don't like my own kind of like depressing thoughts of like, I'm a writer, I haven't seen my success yet, and I don't have... At the end of the film, I was like, man, I know what I want. I know my, like, if I make it, I've always said I want to see my film up on the silver screen. That's my number one goal. And then I added, and I want a woman who loves me right next to me. And so at the end of the film, I'm like, I don't have fucking either of those. (laughs) So, so man. And this was 6 a.m. this morning. And I don't know if this is going to sound mean or not, but I was like, so this is who Jim Broadbent is. I have known and liked this actor since Moulin Rouge. Oh, great. Do we have whole grain or something other?
3: Oh, what is whole? Is it something in itself? What does it have? Parts. Oh, spaghetti.
6: If you have a hole, you have a hole. Oh, sausages. If you and me is a hole. If you toddle off, there's a hole in the hole. Or if I do.
3: But a hole can't be broken, it just forms another hole. Baked beans.
6: Baked beans.
3: Do you want premium points? Do we deserve them? Do you want bags? Bags, yes. Yeah. You know, it's all around us, people like you and me, talking nonsense. Oh, I know, I know. Bag for life. For life? That's what it says. We have to ask, give you the choice.
6: Who rather? You just have to listen, that's the job. You call it a job, but it's like music, what you do. You live with the angels, speak their language, the music of the stairs. Nowadays, the only language anyone really understands is pictures. Paint the picture. See, now I'm bagged for life.
3: (laughs) Love's the only language everyone understands. Oh, love, yes. I can read it, but I can't speak it.
2: But this is a movie where the men are a supporting cast to the women. Jim Broadbent and Hugh Bonneville do a fantastic job, a fantastic, fantastic job playing John Bailey, one old and one young, but both of them finding a character and portraying both ages of him seamlessly. Hugh shares the screen with Kate Winslet and Jim shares his with Dame Judi Dench. and So most often you are just watching Kate and Judy, Eleanor Braun at the end and simply appreciating that the men are actually there. I don't want to shit on performances here. That's not what I'm doing at all. This this movie, it was that hidden gem that we always talk about. The movie that came out of the blue that we never heard about, never saw. This is my movie. I recommend Iris to anybody that can handle a movie of this. This film was casted brilliantly and all should be proud. But I don't think Jim Broadbent is in the Oscar nom category because he does, while he's fantastic and heartbreaking, eh, maybe I would throw him up there, put him back in that barrel with Jim. G- Gene Hackman, Guy Pearce, Jim Broadman.
1: You do know that he won Best Supporting Actor this year. For Iris? Iris. Yeah. yeah. He's the one that beat Ian McKellen.
2: <laughs> it makes sense to me. He was great. Fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> Okay. So here we are. We're moving on to the Oscars and top five picks of the year was Denzel Washington, who we're taking the award away from. Then you have Russell Crowe from A Beautiful Mind, Sean Penn for I Am Sam, Will Smith for Ali, and Tom Wilkinson for In the Bedroom. And if you're following along, we have Gene Hackman waiting in the wings, and Guy Pearce for Memento. Let's just give one of them <laughs> Sean <laughs> <Yeah>. Penn's nom. <laughs> so let's start. Let's
1: start at the bottom of these five. <laughs> let's start with Sean Penn in I Am Sam, directed by Jesse Nelson. Oopsie, Decaf double tall, non-fat cap for Bruce. <laughs>
4: You got it, buddy. Yeah,
1: that's a wonderful choice, Bruce. Thank you, Sam. Yeah,
2: it certainly is. Thank
1: you. the caramel macchiato. It's very hot. Good morning. Vanilla grande, no foam latte. That's a wonderful choice.
7: Thanks, Sam. Yeah.
1: Okay, hey, Sam, I called. It's time for you to go. Oh, uh, yeah, it's time. It's time, buddy. Yeah, time for me to go now. Yeah. Oh, it's time for me to go now, George. Good luck. Okay, it's
2: fine. So first off, there's another podcast out there that I am really digging, and it's called Smartless with yeah, Will Arnett. I've yeah, I've listening to it too. <laughs> and Sean Penn was just on it. And as he's on it, like, I am feeling bored. Like, oh, I wasn't bored. Like, oh, one, so bored. I have shat on Sean Penn too much <laughs> on this podcast, starting with the thin red line. But sometimes you forget these are real people and whatnot. Real boring Uh, (laughs) people? Speak your mind. But let's talk about I Am Sam with our 2021 eyes on. First off, I remember seeing this movie in the theater and being pretty okay with it. Now I cringed throughout this whole thing, but not as much as when the neurotypical actor sat in a room with a man with Down syndrome and acted like men with intellectual disabilities. Fucking hell, this movie is. is cringe. Don't you just want the one guy to be like fuck all of you (laughs) (laughs) what i didn't know since i knew sean penn was nominated for the award and everybody fell in love with dakota fanning that the critics did not like this film i wonder out of every film we've talked about if we have talked about one that has a 35 percent on rotten tomatoes or a 28 out of 100 on metacritic i bet blindside is close you think so
1: 66 on Rotten Tomatoes and 53 on Metacritic. So no, I think this might be the worst.
2: But this episode is about Sean Penn and his performance. And what can I say? He did his best. But a man who does the best blackface is still doing blackface. The execution of Sean Penn's Sam Dawson. Like, I'm sorry, it's 2002. From the get, the moment Sean Penn is feeding a newborn baby on a city bus, Child Services is being called. No? I feel this whole movie shouldn't have been greenlit. Everybody is good in this film, and the, and the execution is good, but let's bury this performance. Let's bury this film. Let's bury the script. Let's bury everything about this. What is I Am Sam?
1: Mm-hmm. I thought of the great Pauline Kael after seeing this now for the second time. After she reviewed Rain Man, she referred to Dustin Hoffman's performance as "quote humping one note on a piano for two hours and eleven minutes." End quote. And let's let's be frank. And I think Pauline would have appreciated it that Rain Man, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, the other sister, I Am Sam, and uh, any other film you can think of of that elk. Are exploitative. They're Oscar vehicles for egotistical actors, but they're draped in heartfelt marketing and meant to ensnare mawkish dipshits. And the reason I saw it the first time I saw it back in 03, because I was dating a mawkish dipshit. And you know, there are people who want to praise them as inspiring or brave. I think those people need to recognize them for the disingenuous horseshit that they are. If you want to make a film that deals with mental retardation, look no further than Peanut Butter Falcon. That's my boy. T- yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, he's good in it, but I want to take Penn out of the conversation. So I'm assuming you agree <laughs> with a plum. <aplomb. laughs> All right, so let's drop his ass, and I think we both feel a little bit more strongly about Guy Pierce in Memento. Mm-hmm. So let's let's pop Guy up in there. I think he deserves it.
2: So let's go to uh, A Beautiful Mind, and directed by Ron Howard, and the nominee of the year is Russell Crowe.
6: So what's your story? You're the poor kid that never got to go to Exeter or Andover.
1: Despite my privileged upbringing, I'm actually quite well balanced. I have a chip on both shoulders.
6: <laughs> Maybe you're just better with the old integers than you are with people.
1: My first grade teacher, she told me that I was born with
6: two helpings of brain, but only half a helping of heart.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Wow, she sounds lovely. But the truth is that I, I don't like people much. And they don't much like me.
6: But why? With all your obvious wit and charm. <laughs> Seriously, John. Mathematics? Mathematics is never gonna lead you to higher truth. And you know why? Because it's boring.
1: It's really boring. You know, half these boys are already published. I cannot waste time with these classes and these books.
5: Memorizing the weak assumptions of lesser mortals. <laughs> I need to look through to the governing dynamics. Hmm. And a truly original idea. That's the only way I'll ever distinguish myself.
2: It's the only way that I'll ever massive. One of your favorite Oscar winners. Know, I know. And how, so thinking about it, thinking about, I tried to trip Jeremy up in episode one saying, what is your favorite horror film? And what do you think is the most well-made horror film? One year, 2016, I watched all the Best Picture winners. And then I broke it down by decade, which ones were my favorite. And then I broke the whole thing down. And I think A Beautiful Mind was in my top five Best Picture winners of all time. Perhaps even top three, perhaps even top one. But that's favorite. (laughs) That's... Out of all of them, what do I enjoy rewatching the most? It's not what I think is the most well-made. And first, you should know, as a screenwriter myself, I have come to learn that most of my scripts deal with the fragility of the human mind. And most of the time, the fact that the human mind can break either due to stress or due to genius. So A Beautiful Mind is right up my gosh darn alley. Okay. But when I think of the movie, I think of several things. I think of the script. I think of Paul Bettany. And I can't stop falling in love with Jennifer Connolly. You do fall hard Russell, for leading women. Oh. Uh, you, do, you do fall hard. Russell Crowe here is as good as Guy Pearce in Memento. Maybe not. Perhaps. I don't know. The scene with the bathtub and the baby is heart-wrenching. The delivery of the material is astounding, something these movies do quite well. Like when we fast forward to Eddie Redmayne in The Theory of Everything, they can make the subject matter. They don't dumb it down for the audience, but they f- they almost make the audience feel like they're smart enough to understand it. I like it. But why I like Russell Crowe's performances, I... I don't know. I like him more comfortable with himself than when he tries to do these roles that require a lot from him. And I could be alone in this. Clearly, I am. He won the BAFTA, the Golden Globe, the SAG Award. People loved him in this role. I love the movie, but perhaps this all is just showing a lack of imagination.
1: Well, we've had this conversation. I don't get your love for this movie, but I'll try and spare you and our listeners a poisonous or unfocused diatribe. But If I can say something about Crow, I find his talents to be extremely limited. The man can do machismo, the man can do action, and the man can even do comedy. Don't sleep on the nice guys. But awkward? No. Unrefined, maybe, but not awkward. Not socially inept. And certainly not John Nash. So the severity of even his soft expressions in this movie makes this performance amongst his most unbelievable. And the saddest part is, he's really going for it. And it really doesn't work. Um, I don't think it's personal, too, because I, I do like Crow. I think The Insider is my favorite performance of his. I like Master and Commander. I like L.A. Confidential. And like I said, I think The Nice Guys is terrific, but he isn't versatile. And I think the worst part about that is I think he thought that he was for a little bit there.
2: Is it Oscar Nom worthy or should we take it away and give it to Gene Hackman? I mean, I would, but I know your love.
1: I know your love for this film. We can we can leave it in there. I I think it's only a stone's (laughs) throw away from Sean Penn acting like he's mentally handicapped.
2: My motto kind of with the show is is it doesn't matter if you like it, it matters if you could stomach it. And I could stomach Russell Crowe not being nominated for this and Gene Hackman doing it. And Gene Hackman, I totally would get it. okay then he's out welcome right. the last two that were boiled down to one of them is Tom Wilkinson for in the bedroom directed by Todd Field
1: do you know who Todd Field is Mm-mm. did you ever see eyes wide shut yeah he's the piano player that gives Tom Cruise's character the lead on the on the masquerade mm. party sex party so is he um, an
2: actor or is he a director
1: yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so like, <laughs> let's start here this movie was just beloved by critics. David Edelstein called it the best movie of the last several years and evocative, mysterious, inconsolably devastating, not to mention a masterpiece. Some critics compared Field's direction to Bergman, Ozu, and even Kubrick. And Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times called it one of the best directed films of the year. Peter Travers said that Oscar would be a fool if it chooses to ignore Sissy Spacek and Tom Wilkinson's career-crowning performances, which, of course, Oscar did. Uh, Ao Scott included the film in his New York Times essay, The Most Important Films of the Past Decade and Why They Mattered. The New York Times film critics included it in their best 1,000 films of all time. And the February 2020 issue of New York Magazine included it in the best movies that lost Best Picture at the Oscars, alongside There Will Be Blood, Butch Cassidy, The Sundance Kid, Citizen Kane, Pulp Fiction, and lots of other monsters. But do we think it's good.
2: Do we think the movie's good or Tom Wilkinson's performance is good? I say
1: we start with the movie since it's so damn lauded. Let me say first that I find that Gravitas works best with a therapeutic dash of humor. If you're going to make a dark film, you got to meet the audience halfway. And I think maybe nobody does that balancing act quite like the Cohen brothers. They're capable of making a movie rife with strife, but not skimping on absurd black humor. And once you reach your cataclysmic scene of in the bedroom, this film never stops crushing you. Um, Do you love Tom Wilkinson? Because I love Tom Wilkinson. Ever since I saw him in the Full Monty, where he plays Gerald, an absolute wanker whose vulnerability starts to trickle out, I've felt endeared to him. Even when he plays an evil bastard, which he's done to varying degrees most of his career, Wilkie's one of those actors that we take for granted. I call him Wilkie, one of cinema's great constants, whose contributions go untrumpeted. He shows up, he knows his lines, he hits his marks, and all the actors around him come off better. But nine out of ten folks know him as that guy from Batman Begins. But I think, like Keith David, Stephen Root, or the late great Pete Postlewaite, two mentions in this episode, Wilkie is an invisible pillar of our cinematic fabric. He's just not one of those men that have or ever will be given the gratitude that they deserve. He's only Wilkinson's only had really two meaty mainstream roles. One was Michael Clayton, which we talked about earlier this season, and the other is here in the bedroom. If I was picking alone. I would make Wilkie a frontrunner, no doubt. I don't love this movie. I certainly don't want to suffer through the character deteriorations ever again. Twice is one time too many. But maybe that's because Wilkie and everybody really, even Nick Stahl, were so good. Hmm. (laughs) You didn't like it. That's great.
2: I did not. It's not that I did not like this movie. I didn't love it. when I approach a movie, I don't learn anything about it. So going to a movie or putting on a movie, I guess now a days like we do, I knew the title in the bedroom and the poster image is Tom Wilkinson and Sissy Spacek in bed. And I was like, huh, this is going to be an old an old uh, sexpot movie type of thing. Mm-hmm, so I put mm-hmm. it on immediately. <laughs> we just talked about crushing on leading ladies. Dear God, Marissa Tomei yeah. <laughs> in yep. this film. If I could have a woman that looks at me like Marissa Tomei looks at any of her co-stars, I'd be a happy man for the rest of my life. Nick Stahl was amazing in this film. And the first act of this film, to me, the way that it's plotted, the way that it's paced, the way that it's shot is amazing. And then after the first act, the second act to me, kind of, it was a slog. And then the third act, I wanted more from, and that is across the board. I wanted more emotion. I wanted more suspense. Like you kind of know what's going to happen as it goes along. But even so, like after the final act is committed, uh, spoiler warning, if anybody's seen it, even after after he shoots the man who killed his son, the way the other character's dialogue is delivered is almost like we're telling the audience what the original plan was. Like, why'd you shoot him here? We're going to walk him into the woods. And so I didn't like this movie. I'm surprised that it was heralded as much as you say it was because this is what I think is dumbing down for the audience.
3: What did you do? This isn't what we talked about.
5: He he tried to run.
3: We were going to wait
4: and take him out in the woods.
2: I couldn't wait. Tom Wilkinson is really good in it. Like you said, you love Tom Wilkinson. I really like Tom Wilkinson. I didn't really like Michael Clayton, but I think I liked uh, Wilkinson's performance better in Michael Clayton than I like him here. Here he is very quiet. He is very subdued. But I don't think the material gave him too much to work with. And so while I love him and I don't mind the Oscar now, I didn't get it. And I think I texted you. I was like, so In the Bedroom just ended, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Like I wanted more from this movie. No, I get that. I get that entirely.
1: I do think that in that final scene where he... It does keep you guessing because I'd, I'd seen this movie before but it it really did go in one ear and out the other before nick stall is killed i was like oh yeah i remembered that that was coming but then i couldn't remember how it ended so i was i was sort of in suspense in that final moment like whether he really was going to kill the man uh wilkinson was really going to kill the man or if he was going to let him go, and then he leaves the ticket on on the counter, and you're like, "Oh, okay, he's going to kill him." Um, but I still didn't know when. And I think I'm I'm a little conflicted because Wilkinson holding a gun on a young man. I don't know. Maybe I've just seen too many action movies. I just I was like, you could just take that gun from him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I feel like it would have been a more realistic ending if it, instead of him living now with the guilt, more than likely going to jail. I mean, he's going to get caught. Um, Well,
2: Wilkinson does a good job of being like, I've never really handled a gun before. And he's pointing it at a man who just regularly carried around a gun. Yeah. And so I was like, that man has to know, like, I could probably get the jump, right? Like, even the way that Tom Wilkinson cocks his gun with, like, completely giving up his stance, you're kind of like, this guy just saw that and knows that there's going to be a moment that he can get out of this and he never does you know like but even like, like a
1: more after- realistic ending though would have been yeah him going for the gun getting it from him and then wilkinson rushing him and him being like i had to kill him and then getting away with a second murder this time being you know under self-defense i, th- I mean that that's the way i was like does that how this ends so i don't know <laughs> yeah i agree with you i would say wilkinson's number two, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, he's up there. I mean, if you if we're looking at what we have right now, so say this is the five Oscar nominees, Tom Wilkinson for In the Bedroom, Guy Pearce for Memento, Gene Hackman for The Royal Tenenbaums, Denzel Washington for Training Day, Will Smith for Ali. You're going to put Tom Wilkinson at number two on that?
1: No, I'd put Guy Pearce. Sorry.
2: There you go. And let's talk about Will Smith for Ali, directed by Michael Mann.
3: Just the perfect specimen of a man right here. I want to be your motivator.
6: I want to be in your corner. What'd you say your name is? Vundini. Roundy. With Houdini, yeah, except that don't rhyme. Oh, yeah! Oh,
5: yeah! They're coming after you. You're important. They don't want you to fight.
6: Federal Bureau of Investigation, Mr. Clay, you're under arrest.
7: Oh, so they gonna take from me what no fight in the world can? We cannot let
5: you oppose them. They bust you out. Me.
3: You don't remember your name? God don't care about you. Do you think they give a damn if you get killed?
6: So what? So what? I ain't got to be what nobody else want me to be, and I ain't afraid to be what I want to be.
3: Here, I not like a butterfly. Sing like a beat, rumble, young man, rumble.
6: Ah! You can go to Alabama. You can go to Sweden. Everybody knows that I am the champ. All the ladies out
3: there, they know. Let's tell it like it is. We're going from the darkness to the light.
6: You want to send me to jail? Fine, you go right ahead.
7: That boy even dreamed he whooped me. He better wake up and apologize.
6: Come on,
3: down. You lucky he hold me back, man. You lucky he hold me back. Supposed to be the myth of Muhammad was gonna fall. Supposed to be my destruction.
7: All right, now listen, I'm gonna hit your hand six times before you get the three. You ready? Go. One, two, three. Did I hurt you?
2: This is who we're gonna give the Oscar to. This is how we're completing our Poly Academy series. This is who I said was seven years old when Al Pacino lost to Art Carney. <laughs> and that kind of set this whole chain in motion. I remember when this movie was coming out, watching behind the scenes of Will Smith on Entertainment Tonight, preparing for the role. He was screening Ali fights in dark rooms and just focusing on them like he was in Clockwork Orange or something as he worked out, practically putting blinders on to memorize the movements and mannerisms of Muhammad Ali. Will Smith was famous for being at the time Mr. Summer Blockbuster, Independence Day, Men in Black, and by the time Wild Wild West came out in 1999, he was dubbing The Changing of the Centuries, The Willennium. Successful recording artist, successful actor, and Ali was going to be his moment to be taken as a serious actor. And he put in the work. I talk a lot about transformation when it comes to acting. Smith spent about 1 year learning about Ali's life. These included boxing training up to 7 hours a day, Islamic studies with Wilja Akbar and I like training. Smith has said that his portrayal of Ali is his proudest work to date. And I think he could stand behind that. He was paid $20 million for the role. And what I love about it, he wasn't paid $20 million for stage combat. One of the selling points of the film is the realism of the fight scenes. All the boxers in the film are former or current world heavyweight championship caliber boxers. It was quickly decided by the bigwigs in the room that Hollywood fighting, which is passing the fist or foot between the camera and the face to create the illusion of a hit would not be used in favor of actual boxing for the movie of Ali. The only limitation placed upon the fighters was for Charles Shufford, who plays George Foreman in the film, and he was permitted to hit Smith as hard as he could so long as he did not actually knock Will Smith out. That is what Will Smith (laughs) earned his paycheck for. Smith worked alongside boxing promoter Guy Sharp from Sharpshooter Entertainment and his lead fighter Ross Kent to get the majority of his boxing tips for the film. And Will Smith even had to gain weight, beefing up to 200 pounds, which was Ali's fighting weight. That is the precision that he put forth to look the part of Muhammad Ali, because he knew that makeup was going to be minimal. As said in the New York Times wisely, Mr. Smith did not see his job as impersonation. Quote, Billy Crystal does a great impersonation, Will Smith says. What I'm trying to do is an interpretation of the man on the inside that motivated the one the world saw. I'm not going to say that I look like Ali, though the way I'm done up, people tell me there's a resemblance. But I do think I could get him from the inside. Suggest his motivations, his passions, what he was about. I think I can create a character a lot like Muhammad Ali. I mean, look at Christopher Plummer in Michael's last movie. He didn't look like Mike Wallace, but when you saw him, you were convinced you were looking at Wallace. Will Smith, is in, he's got an ego. And to put that out there, to put the challenge on the table that this is the character that I'm creating for Muhammad Ali, I think he matched it.
1: You know, I used to think that I wanted to be an actor, but I, I really only ever wanted to talk about it. I don't i don't ever, I didn't really ever want to do it. I didn't want to do the work. And I couldn't imagine the self-doubt that Smith, Smith must've felt after saying yes, although I'm sure the $20 million payday helped, but think of it, to agree to portray one of the 20th century's most beloved personalities, a fierce competitor, a charming linguist, and the purest example of american civil disobedience that i can think of apart from martin luther king jr no thanks i mean they jump all over the poor kids you know fucking around with lightsabers in the new star wars movies god only knows what they're gonna do to you if you muck up the people's champ because it was bold of him to say hey you know what man i'm not doing an impersonation i'm going from the inside out
2: so he's saying like my interpretation of this character is subjective to who i think it is going to be and then so your critique of him is also going to be subjective
6: Man, if they came to me tomorrow and they say we want you to fight Joe Frazier, Madison Square Garden, millions and millions of dollars. Here's your license back. I will tell them I will never fight again. Frankly, Muhammad, I'm surprised because unless you or until you fight Frazier, Kosele, there are people are you who losing are losing your hearing along with your hair. Don't put no question to it, man. I done told you I'm through fighting. I got a much bigger contender, a much heavier opponent. I'm fighting the entire U.S. government. Do you think you're going to jail? I don't know. I don't know. Joe Frazier told me on this show that he could knock you out. See, there you go agitating. You should have asked smoking Joe what have he been smoking. That boy even dreamed he'd he me. He better wake up and apologize. But if I ever was to get in the ring with Joe, here's what you might see. Ali comes out to meet Frazier, but Frazier starts to retreat. If Joe goes back an inch farther, he'll wind up in a ringside seat. Ali swings with his left. Ali swings with his right. Just look at the kid carry the fight. Frazier keeps backing, but there's not enough room. It's only a matter of time before Ali lowers the boom. Ali swings with his right. What a beautiful swing. But the punch lifts Frazier clean out of the ring. Frazier's still rising, and the referee wears a frown because he can't start counting till Frazier comes down. Phrases disappeared from view. The crowd is getting frantic, but our radar station's done picked him up. He's somewhere over the Atlantic. Now, who would have thought when they came to the fight, they was going to witness the launching of a black satellite? But don't wait for that fight. It ain't never going to happen. only thing you could do is wonder and imagine.
4: This has been another sports exclusive
6: from ABC.
4: Over to Jim McKay and Baron
6: How are you going to go from me to Jim McKay? Uh... Did your wife leave you yet? No, she hasn't left me yet. And well, she's, she's gone going it. to because I told your wife when I
2: seen her, I said, listen, why are you doing this to yourself? <laughs> <laughs> to point a fact, I'm not a diehard Will Smith fan. <laughs> this is not me trying to put my beloved... Summertime rapper up on the Oscar stage. <laughs> In fact, when, you. yeah, when, and when he said "Millennium" after Wild Wild West, I, at the time that Wild Wild West came out, I was an usher for the local movie theater, and I had to listen to that dumbass rap after that dumbass movie, wiki <laughs> wiki every day for like a month. I started to turn my nose up at him. I enjoyed Independence Day, but that wasn't his film really. I liked Men in Black. I I think his best work may be I Am Legend. That wasn't going to be on the Oscar stage, but he is incredible in that film. In fact, to be totally transparent, I liked him even less in 2016. This is even newer when he wasn't nominated for concussion and him and his wife threw such a stink about it. And then they said they were boycotting the Oscars.
4: Begging for
0: acknowledgement or even asking, diminishes dignity, and diminishes power. And we are a dignified people, and we are powerful. And let's not forget it. So let's let the Academy do that with all grace and love. And let's do us differently. I got nothing but love. Hey, Chris. I will not be at the Academy Awards and I won't be watching, but I can't think of a better man to do the job at hand this year than you, my friend. Good luck. And to the rest of you, nothing but love, always.
2: I know I gave a really long Oscar fun fact earlier, but here's a small Oscar fun fact for you. The only way you get to go to the Oscars is if you're nominated. (laughs) The second way is if you're presenting. And the third way, a very minimal, minuscule, don't bet your life on it is being a special guest at the Oscars. So Will Smith not getting nominated, which is in turn him not getting invited, and then publicly saying he was boycotting them, is one of those instances where I wish the Academy had the gall to say, you weren't even invited, Will. Anytime an actor says they are boycotting the Oscars, ask yourself first, what were they nominated for? And if they weren't, they're not boycotting shit. (laughs) But
3: what happened this year? What happened? People went mad, you know? Spike got mad and Jonathan got mad and Jada went mad and Will went mad. Everybody went mad, you know? It's quite like Jada got mad. Jada says she's not coming. Protesting. I'm like, is she on a TV show? Jada's gonna boycott the Oscars. Jada boycotting the Oscars is like me boycotting Rihanna's panties. I wasn't invited!
2: (laughs) But Ali, this is a complete performance. I can only prejudge Mr. Smith as I have never met him, and despite not being a huge fan, I have to say, this was his award.
1: I agree. I agree. You gotta imagine how difficult it was, not just in the characterization of Ali, but to, to reform, let alone disguise, a personality as big as Will Smith was. I don't want to retread ground, but you know, he established an identity with Fresh Prince, mass marketed himself with immediate and immense success through Bad Boys Independence Day and Men in Black, sold a shit ton of records. Thanks for those beats, DJ, Jazzy Jeff. He was universally loved. And then, as you mentioned, of course, Wild Wild West happened. And all the haters who were mad that he had four seats at the Lakers came out of the woodwork, and audiences started feeling that big willy sized fatigue. He makes one movie be- Between Wild Wild West and Ali, which is the legend of Bagger Vance, which was another critical and commercial diarrhea pile. Thankfully, his phone rang one day, and it was the greatest himself on the other line, telling Smith he had to be the one to play him in Ali because he was the only one pretty enough. You talk about his training, and I found one anecdote that I found particularly interesting. He climbed the slopes... In Aspen with a trainer named Daryl Foster, and they got to an elevation of ten thousand feet. And while severely oxygen deprived, Foster made him run and throw punches in order to correlate it to how Ali felt in the fourteenth round with former heavyweight world heavyweight champion Joe Frazier, and how it feels to actually not be able to breathe, but you've still got to continue fighting. This is one demonstrative workout that Foster inflicted on Big Willie, and apparently the Fresh Prince fell to his knees, and then once on the ground in the snow. No, Foster made him write Ali's name in the snow. Apparently Smith told Foster, now I get it. But my guess is he probably just wanted the pain to stop. He did this at 32 years old. I don't know if I could have done this at 22 or even 12. Christ, am I out of shape. And, you know, I'll be critical, too, for a moment. Michael Mann's vision for this film frequently doesn't work. There's strange editing choices that create a really odd-paced timeline, which is more than a little incoherent at times. And I've tried to rewatch it and rewatch it just to see if I can make sense of it, but I shouldn't have to do that. The first act also, maybe even more importantly, feels really powerless. And and there's so many frequent diversions. And though they're salient to Ali's story, they're distracting rather than complimentary. This movie really just needs to get to the rumble in the jungle. It needs to get to the Forman Ali fight in Zaire. But whatever, man's not on the chopping block, number one. Number two, Smith is what keeps me coming back. And it sure doesn't hurt at all that he gets to bounce off Jamie Foxx, Jeffrey Wright, McKelty Williamson as Don King, my second favorite performance in the film, and John Voight. What Smith manages is magic. It's a magic trick. He makes himself this huge persona disappear. And as Ali, there's nary a speck of that lovable boyish charm that moved so many records and put so many asses in seats. He is entirely gone poof. Uh,
7: The process of becoming Muhammad Ali was the uh, most grueling process (laughs) that I've ever been through in my life. It was uh, a year's worth of training, and essentially we would do 6 a.m. running, um, we'd have breakfast, and then we'd go into the, the boxing gym from 10 a.m. to one in the afternoon. Uh, then we'd do, I mean, we'd do technical boxing training, then we'd go into lunch, then we'd have Islamic studies, and then we would have uh, dialect training where I'd work on the voice, and then we had uh, a neurobiologist that was explaining the inner workings of the human brain. So to to help me uh, be able to create the motions and the moves of Muhammad Ali through creating neural passages in my brain. (laughs) And then at the end of the day, we'd go back into the weight room and do weightlifting. Like the the neurobiologist was also dealing with uh, proper programming for success. Um, Like, for example, I would never lay down in a boxing ring. Like, if I would do ab work, I would never lay down in a boxing ring just in order to not get my mind programmed to being on my back in a ring. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's Michael Mann. So, <laughs> <laughs> essentially, the first step was just to learn how to fight. And that, and that was the thing. Um, Michael Mann uh, and my, my trainer's name is Daryl Foster. The, the approach was that there's no acting here. There's fighting. Become a fighter. And that was the first, really, the six, first six months of the preparation is to become a fighter and live as a fighter and learn how to fight. And then from that point, I would learn how to fight like Muhammad Ali. And I mean, we just watched hours and hours and hours of videotape and the, uh, the neurobiologist, um, essentially he had me creating neural passages by, I would sit in a dark room and I would just watch a loop of a Muhammad Ali move. You know, Muhammad Ali had a move, a thing that he did with the jab where his jab was more than a flick, more of a flick. So I would just watch the jab in a dark room for hours and hours, just sit there watching the jab. And, it's, and that would essentially burn neural passages into my brain. There's certain aspects that you never let go of. There's a, there's a certain, every role that you play when you, when you go th- that far into uh, this self-imposed hypnosis, when you go that far into it. There's certain aspects that are never gonna leave.
2: It is a magic trick. It is because there are t- like I don't know of anybody else that could play this role that would have done as good of a job and even if you're like it's Will Smith playing Muhammad Ali of course it is I remember pitching this and being like 2002 was Will Smith's year and you're like Well, ah, I think we're just being political about like if we're going to take it away from Denzel we have to give it to Will Smith and I watching it all one I then also disagreed with you that you know this was a shit year for movies and I was like no years a shit for year for movies if you mm-hmm. if you You drain the swamp or whatever the saying is, like, you will find the gems. And this was, (laughs) you were right on that. This was a shit year for movies. And even researching it all and watching everything, I still feel that Will Smith stands out ahead above the rest as putting in, delivering the greatest performance of the year.
1: And... Not to throw shade on anybody, but Eli Gore, who plays Cassius Clay and not Muhammad Ali in One Night in Miami, I felt he was a lot of fun. But that, I mean, it was very one note. So when he's in the car and he tries to get serious with Sam Cooke, it's just he's he was too young. I think, Eli Gore was to portray the multiple sides of who Muhammad Ali was. I think Will Smith, just being in the public eye, much in the same way that Muhammad Ali was, um, obviously for different reasons, but and also having this very vibrant personality that people were attracted to, very magnetic persona, And then realizing, hey, man, my time might be over. It's almost a little bit like Ali's comeback fight in Zaire after, you know, no one would book him, after they revoked his license, after they completely treated him like a piece of shit after doing one of the bravest things that a non-military member of uh, the American public can do, which is say, nope, nope, I'm not. Not only am I not gonna go over there, but you can go ahead and throw me in jail. I'll, I'll take it.
3: Listen, you ain't no champ. You a chump. Look like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Ah, rumble, young man, rumble y'all want to lose y'all money, then you bet it on Sonny. He know I'm great. He will fall in eight. Come on, you big ugly bear. I'll whoop you right now. Wait a second. 210 and a half. 210 and a half. The challenger. Cassius Play. 210 and a half pounds. Man, you showed us, right? Oh, ugly bear. Come on, let's go. You got all these folks fooled. I ain't scared of y'all. I ain't scared of you 218 218 Sonny Liston The champion of the world 218 pounds Pounds of what? Pounds of ugly That man's so ugly When he sweat The sweat run backwards Off his forehead Just to stay away From his face <laughs> Come on you big ugly bear I'll turn you into a rod. Keep talking I'm gonna fuck you up If you whoop me, I'll crawl out of the ring and take the first jet airplane out the country. Is that a promise, Mr. Clay? You're gonna be the first one eating his word. Cashes, you're a seven to one underdog He in talks this fight. with his fists. What do you say? You scared of him? I'm gonna give Sonny Liston, talking lessons, boxing lessons, and falling down lessons. Cassius, sir. Are you a black Muslim? Pat Putnam says in the Miami Herald. Man's religion
6: is his own business. What kind of question? Angelo, tell Mr. me, Clay, tell me. The fact is, Malcolm X was in town, then he left. Was that so he wouldn't embarrass Cassius, you? Cassius. Yeah, how Liston doesn't how like it? you. Really can't stand you. Says he wants to kill you. Howard Co. Sale, you ain't nothing but an instigator. Man, how you get that way? Cassius, now you're being truculent. Well, if it's good, I'm mad. <laughs> you next. soon as I'm
3: done with sunny listing, I'm fighting Howard Co. sales. Y'all write that down, right <laughs>
2: So there it is. There it is. Will Smith gets the Oscar for this year. I don't, and I think we can successfully close this political chain. I don't know if the Academy will ever come back and say, you know, w- we fucked up with the Ali thing. So, Will Smith, here's your Oscar for this. He has turned in performances that I think people talk about with like the pursuit of happiness. I really liked I Am Legend, but. I think this was his moment. I think this was the Oscar that he should have won. And I don't know if they're going to rectify that in the future.
1: More than likely not.
2: And the Oscar
1: goes to Will Smith for Ali. Well done, Mr. Smith. I think it's well-deserved. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the wrap-up of today's episode. And I guess looking back on these three episodes that we've done, even you, the most dedicated of Oscar viewers, has no problem admitting that at least once a year, at least once a year, an Oscar's given not on merit, not on skill, and not to the person who deserved it. Instead, the Oscar becomes an apology, a show of cumulative gratitude, or even in some cases, feels like a housewarming gift to the hottest, trendiest kid in the room. I'm looking at you, Jennifer Lawrence. Other times, the Oscar goes to someone like Matthew McConaughey, who never should have even been in the same room as an Oscar, let alone any Oscar winners. His interminable self aggrandizing acceptance speech, was the longest of the last 25 years, and not once did he mention the real-life Ron Woodroof. He did, however, let us know that he looks up to God, mentioned that his dad, who taught him to be a man, is looking down from heaven, dancing around in his underwear and drinking a Miller Lite. No qualms there, I suppose. But he finished by thanking his hero, who was himself. God, there's more. There's so much more. Suffice to say, we don't have the time. But historically, this is how the Academy has chosen to do business. Undeserved political back padding punctuated by perfunctory thank yous and marketing maneuvers. It is an unholy merger of Hollywood's worst qualities. But hey, I'll probably still tune in next year because I've got hope.
2: And I really like the Academy Awards. (laughs) I know. I know you do.
1: Thanks for joining us this time, and in two weeks, we'll be back with you again, or less, depending on when you're listening to this. Until then, my name is Lee Charles. I'm Spro. And we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are ready. If
3: you ever change
1: Well, that does it for this episode and for our Poly Academy series. Thanks for listening. Our next episode, our season finale, two parts, four guests,
2: and a very special honorary Oscar. See you in two weeks on December 13th. And if you're new to our little Shindig's Fro and Lee episodes, old and fresh, are released every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform.
1: Please join our Facebook group, follow us on Instagram, or send an email to takeontheacademy at gmail.com. With any suggestions, questions, complaints, recipes, or manifestos, we like hearing from you. We'll see you front row when the envelopes are ready.
3: While I'm a living, bring it to me. Bring that good loving, baby. Bring it all home to me. One more thing I gotta tell you. Listen to me right now. You know that I tried to treat you right. What did you do? Baby, bring it on! Everybody's with me. Everybody's with me tonight.